Hello, you're listening to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director and the producer of this series, bringing you the very best in our programme of talks with the world's preeminent artists and writers, scientists, leaders and scholars. Lisa Tadeo's Three Women was one of the blockbuster books of 2019, critically heralded as a once-in-a-generation book, the first in a new genre and an instant classic. We invited Lisa to London to meet The Guardian columnist Hadley Freeman and tell us more about how she created one of the literary events of the year. Hi everyone, can you hear me? Is this blonde ambition style microphone working? Okay, great. Uh, Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. My name's Hadley Freeman, I'm a journalist at The Guardian, and I'm so thrilled to be here with Lisa Tadeo, who is the author of what is by far a million miles, my book of the year, Three Women, which I'm sure you've all read. Lisa is a also well-known journalist uh, who's been working in the States for long time, all your career, yeah. And this is her debut book, and it's already been a runaway bestseller on both sides of the ocean, and I'm just so thrilled she could come here tonight. So everyone, please welcome Lisa. So I have about a million questions, and I'm sure you guys all do too. First of all, let me just check. Have all of you read the book? I mean, how much do we need to explain the book? Oh, wow. Okay, so do... Maybe we'll do a bit of explanation of the book. <laughs> um, and I'm sure all of you have read the book. We'll also have a million questions. So we'll save some time afterwards for um, Q&A. Um, do you want to sum up the book, or shall I sum oh up God. the book? Oh, God. You sum up the book. <laughs> <laughs> so Lisa spent eight years uh, researching this book, and it's the story of three women, Maggie, Lena, and Sloane. And it's about women's relationship with their desire uh, and their sexuality and how men affect it, how men thwart it, how men frustrate it. And she immersed herself in the lives of these three women, moving to their towns occasionally, spending day after day with them, learning about what made them desire things, how they felt, how they controlled their own desires. And it's the most extraordinary book I've ever read about female sexuality and really about women. Um, And I just wanted to start with the obvious thing here, really. Has the reaction to the book surprised you? Because you were obviously so immersed in this research for so long. You pop up and suddenly the whole world is staring at you. Yes. Um, The reaction surprised me horrifically. (laughs) I thought I was writing a very quiet book. And um, I don't don't know. It It was shocking. So were there moments during the process? I mean, you de- you've described in the past how you would go out to Indiana, where Lena lived, and stand in the field where she just met her lover. Lena is a married, mo- she was at the time a married mother of two, and she got back in touch with an old boyfriend on Facebook, and they started having this affair, and they would occasionally meet in this field by the river. And Lisa would just sort of wait, and then when they were done, she would walk down to where they'd been and just take in all the sights and the sounds to describe it in the book. And I wonder if there were moments when you were doing this thinking, is anyone going to be interested in the sex life of this random woman in Indiana? What, what is it that I'm telling here? What is the story? Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, when I, I moved to Indiana rather abruptly without really telling anybody that I knew, because I was going from New York to Indiana. It's kind of a shocking transition. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine back in New York, and I was telling her about Lena, who was driving 
four hours to meet this man for like 20 minutes. And he was also married and he was giving her very little in, the, in, the, in terms of time and just emotion. And um, I was telling my friend in New York and she said, oh my God, that's so pathetic. And I was like, I had to remind her that she had done the same thing. <laughs> like a couple of months prior with like a VP at Goldman Sachs. So what I found so, um, what I just found intriguing and just, just shocking was that somebody would call somebody pathetic because the window dressing was different. So at that point I decided I wanted to write it in a very granular and specific way because I think specific is the only way to get specific is the only way we can actually empathize. Mm -hmm. And this all started when you wrote uh, an interview with Rachel Uchitel. Is that right? Who, um, for those of you who don't remember, Rachel Uchitel became very well known in, I think, 2010. Is that when? Yes. Um, when she was revealed to be one of Tiger Woods' mistresses. Allegedly. Alleged. <laughs> alleged mistress. Uh, and you wrote this amazing long piece about Rachel Uchitel's world. Rachel was at that point working as, what was the, the term, like the hostess? Or she was like an, yeah, she was a hostess. She was kind of an ambassador to um, the bottle girl industry. Do you guys know what bottle girls are? I don't know if that's a thing mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in the, in the U.S., it's a thing. So it's um, the young woman who's basically a cocktail waitress, but uh, men will pay five to $15,000 for a table in a really love, I guess, a lovely part of the VIP room where there's like more strobes, I guess. And swanky nightclubs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and these young women who, you know, are often lovely and young will bring these Jeroboams of, of like crystal over to the table with sparklers and it'll be like a big deal because the men paid $10,000 for a bottle of vodka. Um, and <laughs> so... Tiger Woods had allegedly had this relationship with Rachel Yucatel, but he also had a relationship. Yucatel, sorry, I totally. Oh no, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, maybe. Um, so he had this relationship with all these bottle girls, and I found it so interesting because I found them more interesting than Rachel Yucatel, just her, because it was such a world that I didn't understand. And oh, because they weren't, they weren't, they weren't prostitutes. They weren't having sex with men for money. But what was happening is, in the on the weekends and off days, the men would call them and say, "What are you doing? Do you want to go to Miami this weekend?" And these young women would go on these boats with them, and these men would have these beautiful women on their boats, and then in exchange, they would buy them a pair of like lobotons or something you know, lovely. And, and so it was kind of transactional, mm -hmm. but in a very uh, unspoken way. Mm -hmm. So I spent like a couple of months writing about that. And on the back of that, an an agent got in touch with you and suggested you write a book about sex and desire. Is that, is that the right way of putting it? Uh, yeah. I mean, an editor, my current editor mm -hmm. got in touch it, with me and he said, do you want to write a book? And I had been writing fiction. So I was like, oh, I have all these novels. <laughs> I'm just trying to pass them down. And he was like, no, 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 nonfiction. So, um, and he said, you know, you can, he was like, what do you want to write about? And I was like, I don't know, dog sledding? <laughs> um, so I really didn't know what I wanted to write about. And he sent me a number of books um, from Janet Malcolm to Tracy Kidder, Joan Didion, just very like heavyweights in the nonfiction, the creative nonfiction world. And I was, I, like, I don't read nonfiction that I don't, and, like, I don't, if I'm interested in a subject, I won't read it by an author that I don't like. So I, and I will read almost anything by an author that I do like. 
So I read these books and I read them because the authors were fascinating to me. Tom Wolfe and, and one of the books was Gates Elise's Thy Neighbor's Wife. Mm which uh, Gates Elise, uh, a journalist, an American journalist, spent about a decade researching sexuality uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And he went to um, a swingers commune in California, and he immersed himself He was a deeply. participant, yes. <laughs> um, and then in New York, he operated a massage parlor. <laughs> With happy endings. And then he also felt that he had to get them in order to fully immerse himself. And so I read that book, and I was really... I mean, I think sex and desire are, you know, really interesting. I think we all do. Um, and I just... Because Thy Neighbor's Wife was... It was interesting and immersive, but it was so wildly male. Mm. And I just wondered what a book about desire would look like told from a female perspective. And you met with Gay Talese as well, right? Yes. And he, I think, had some advice for what you had to do with your book. Oh, he did. Is this being... <laughs> fil- I keep going. <laughs> so I went, to, um, I went to his townhouse, which is this lovely place. And I walked in, and he was wearing this, like, 75-piece suit. And he was extraordinarily elegant. And he took me into this beautiful, like, scotch room. Um, <laughs> And he had a glass of scotch, and I was like, I don't think he even offered me liquor. Um, But he was acting like I had drunk a lot of liquor. And he he said to me that the there was no way I could ever improve upon his book. But if I wanted to sort of come close enough to have people read it, that there was only one way I could do that. And I'm going to use the word he used, even though he's an 80-year-old man. He said I had to go out and fuck married men. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was the advice and yeah so um so I remember going home and I called my editor at Esquire and I said you know Gates Lease who had been an idol of mine I was like he told me that the only way I could write this book was by doing this and I'm obviously not going to do it but does that mean like I'm not a real writer because he basically said I remember saying to him I was like what if I get I was because I knew that talking about the immorality of it wasn't going to help because he wasn't an intensely moral individual so I said well what if I get a disease and he said then you fucking write about it (laughs) did he mean you had to fuck him I mean, he's a I mean, I think man. that's where it was going. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so then the figures that are in every article about you is that you cross, crisscrossed America six times in eight mm-hmm. years. How, can you talk us through that process, how you knew where you were going? Were there certain places you decided? I mean, I never knew where I was going. Probably not until like the eighth year when I was like, here's my man. I didn't, I never knew where I was going. But I would post these signs up across the country. And I was always, I would do it, I was always like trying to keep it like a broad range. It would be like a Texas truck stop and a bathroom. And, you know, I loved bathrooms because nobody sees you. You can just post signs on stalls and on baby changing tables. I posted them on, um, in barbecue joints in Alabama. I just, I ran the sort of, I just ran the gamut of what I thought, what I hoped. And for example, like I spent a lot of time in Marfa, Texas, Mm -hmm. which I was into before I Love Dick. The show came out, just so everybody knows. (laughs) Um, And I just, I kept thinking I would, you know, I spent time in places that that I thought were going to be cool. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. But moving to Indiana was the first thing that I did that actually stuck. 
So how did you know what you were looking for when you would meet? Because obviously you met a lot of people in the process. How were you able to whittle down the subjects that would be suitable for your book? So when I met Lena, I had started this discussion group in Indiana. And I met Lena, and she walked into the room, and all these women were lovely, and they were talking about you know, their, their sex lives and whatnot. And, but Lena walked in and said right away, kind of just very openly to an entire room of women, that her husband had just told her that he no longer wanted to kiss her on the mouth and that the very sensation offended him. And then they went to a couples therapist and the couples therapist said, well, you know, Lena, the way that you feel about wet wool is the way that Ed feels about kissing you on the mouth. And that was like very heartbreaking. And then the next time she, and right away, I was just like this, you know, that was a compelling thing. And the, but it wasn't even the story of it. It was the way that she emoted. And then the next time she came into the room, oh, and all the women were like, oh, my God, honey, blah, blah, blah. And then the next time she came into the room, she said that she had reconnected on Facebook with her high school boyfriend with whom she had always been stratospherically obsessed. And all the women suddenly were like kind of pulling away. And afterwards, they stayed to tell me that they thought she was a whore. So I was like, you know, this is my person. One, because the judgment, I thought that the judgment around her was almost more compelling a story than, not more compelling, but it almost said as much about desire as her actual story did. Was that the thing that most surprised you, the way she was being judged? Oh, like yeah. That? I mean, I always, I've seen a lot of female judgment, but that was, it was so like jagged. It went from, you know, don't worry, you can get, you know, if you leave him, you get spousal support, which Lena didn't even know about. Mm. And that's the thing, she didn't know that if she got divorced that somebody, you know, that he would be able to give her money to take care of the kids. Mm. Where do you think that comes from, having spent so much time seeing this judgment? Why do women judge one another for pursuing pleasure? You know, I often feel that it's a sort of, um, it's kind of, it's either, I think it's usually one of two things, at least from what I saw, is that either it's kind of your own fear and shame refracted onto someone else, or sometimes it's jealousy that someone is doing something that you wish you could do. Like, oh, you're having mind-blowing sex, and I am, you know, baking chicken nuggets. <laughs> and, you know, it's just kind of, it's... <laughs> Now, as I said in the intro, during all this of crisscrossing America and talking about sex lives, you had your baby. Yeah. And, you know, no man ever gets asked this question. But. I know. <laughs> but, I know I, that's all the question. Yeah. <laughs> but how did you combine it? Because you were moving everywhere and you were with these women every day and you had this newborn baby. Yeah. And heavily pregnant as well. Yes, I yeah. was. And, you yeah. know, yes, yes. I was. Mm. There are some things said. To, anyway, I'm going to skip that. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I took her everywhere. I kind of continue to because I'm just, I don't know, not because I love her that much. I mean, I love her. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I have intense anxiety. But that's a whole other book. Um, but I, I had her, like, in a sling, and I would be in bars with her. And what was great was that it made me less creepy, I think, walking up to people and saying... <laughs> When was the last time you had sex? <laughs> but you didn't, you didn't stop at all during that process? You didn't take time out? It's amazing. Time out? Well, I mean, I only took time outs when the women, like, wanted some space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like with Lena, you were the most intensely oh, yeah. involved. Well, Lena never wanted space, and I loved that. Um, 
she wanted to just tell me everything and I just wanted to listen. And so with Lena, it was kind of this perfect storm of her needing to talk and my needing to listen. And so it was just perfect. Also, I had come from a good deal of loss. And so I think that we naturally sort of connected. Um, and I didn't, this is, I'm not trying to sound philanthropic, but I didn't want her to feel alone. And I think that was one of the things I was writing towards with the book was not, like the idea of aloneness. We're so alone yeah. in general, no matter how you know surrounded we are. And I think in larger cities, we're like the most alone we could possibly be. And so I just wanted, I wanted, with Lena, I just wanted to really, I wanted to just listen to everything and be there. Mm. Now, probably the most vulnerable woman in the book, I, I mean, I think, was probably Maggie. Mm. And when I told uh, my colleagues at The Guardian that I was doing this interview, everyone there who read your book wanted to know how you were allowed to write about her. Because for those of you who haven't read the book, Maggie, um, we meet her when she's in her early 20s. And she'd had a sexual relationship with, well, she'd been groomed and abused, is the right way to put it, by her high school teacher in 2009. And we meet her about six years later, and she's dealing with the emotional wreckage of that and also the legal aftermath, because she has since exposed the teacher. And uh, that teacher is called Aaron Nodal. And this is all true, and like these names are, they, uh, Lisa kept the names in the book. They, Maggie's the only name you didn't change, is that right? Um, and we, we get to hear about the relationship, that seems like the wrong word to use, but the abuse between Maggie and Nodal through Maggie's eyes. And Lisa just writes about it. And uh, for all the journalists out here, I don't need to tell you, but it's very hard, uh, maybe especially in this country, I don't really know the difference in America, but to be able to write about a victim's experience uh, when the person has been acquitted, as Aaron Nodal was. He was acquitted of three counts, and the other two counts were thrown out because of a mistrial. Um, and yet in the book, you read the book, there is no doubt that he, he did these that things. He allegedly yeah, there's a few alleged, <laughs> they're sparsely allegedly dropped in, but like, you know, there, we get yeah. in the real granular detail of, first of all, Maggie's emotional experience through this. You know, we really drill down into what it felt like for her to be picked up in the car by Aaron Nodal mm -hmm. and following him around the bookstore and all that. You're really with her. But also the sexual details of what he was doing to her and how he was manipulating her. And... Uh, so every, on behalf of every British journalist, how were you able to write about this? What's funny is I will say that other countries were much like, how do you do this? I don't know if in America we're just like, oh, fuck it. <laughs> but, um, but it was heavily legally vetted. And there was a question over whether or not to use her name and his name. And for me, my, my sort of argument on, on using their real names was that Maggie's, um, Maggie was already in the press. They were in the press. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like the other two women who were private citizens. So I, I thought that the idea of masking her again when she was a Jane Doe for much of her early adult life would be doing a disservice to her story. So, so anyway, it was heavily legally vetted. Uh, it allegedly, you know, there's a lot of allegedly's that I say out in the world. Um, but I, you know, I allegedly think it was vetted to a good extent. <laughs> and has Nodal been in touch with you or his legal team? No, but what I will say is that it was sold out in Fargo, North Dakota the day that it came out. 
Really? Like completely. Yeah. So, so no, I don't, I don't know if he's read it. I mean, what kind of sparked, <laughs> is this fair to say, Maggie's decision to go public with him is that he was named North Dakota's Teacher of the Year in 2014. So five years after this relationship and Maggie's life has just kind of gone south. So he was this very public, beloved teacher and he still is, really, as far as I know. Yeah. He's still teaching and he's still married to his wife and they're perfect children and all the rest of it. Um, but surely this has brought more attention. That hasn't affected his career as far as you know? I, I know that on the website of the school, he's the assistant golf coach for the girls' side. So I don't know. I don't think so. And how has this been for Maggie? Because she obviously had a terrible time you during know, the case. I will say that Maggie, because um, I was the most worried about her because it's her real name, she is shockingly doing amazing. I mean, just in general, she's a social worker. She's on her own, in her own life, she's doing amazing. But as far as the book was concerned, because that was my, you know, I didn't want to hurt her. I wanted to do the opposite. She has been written to from hundreds of young women across the world. One from Kenya had Instagrammed her, and it was just amazing. Like, I feel seen. Thank you. There was like a 50-year-old woman who said, you know, my teacher was, is still kind of the love of my life, and you helped me see that it was fucked up. Um, and also the biggest thing that was amazing was that Abby Wambach, who's, you know, the soccer superstar, um, posted a picture of herself reading three women on Instagram. And she was Maggie's hero growing up. Like, Maggie had, you know, pictures of her all over. Be like getting a, you know, like David Beckham, essentially. Oh, yeah, for sorry, Amer- I'm for sorry. Amer- I didn't, for American I sh- soccer, yeah. I should have, I should have un-Americanized it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Abby Wambach posted this picture, and then I wrote to her and said, you know, you're Maggie's hero. And she publicly wrote, Maggie's my hero. So it was like, and Maggie, like, you know, that was a big, that was huge. Mm -mm -mm. So, and she has said that the book has given her closure. I just think she's doing really well. And I think what's important is her story was not heard at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I wanted to tell it from her point of view, Mm -hmm. in her voice, in Mm -hmm. her sort of, you know, the way she felt. Because at a trial, you can only, I mean, what I read about Maggie's trial right as it was ending while I was in, North Dakota looking at a different story. And I read in the local newspaper um, that this young woman, this man had been basically acquitted of this alleged relationship. And there were these hours of phone calls after 11 p.m. at midnight. And my mother has always said to me that nothing good happens after midnight, (laughs) which has taken me like 20 years to like fully grasp. Um, But when I saw that, I was just like, I was shocked. I was like, oh my God, what what did people think about that, you Mm -hmm. know? And even the people on the jury, I spoke to some people, you know, off the record and it was just, it was shocking. Like, I think that even if the text messages, which were insane, Mm -hmm. um, and also he wrote these little, God, this is the most heartbreaking thing is he wrote these notes. um, She had this copy of Twilight, which is her favorite book, The Vampire Lover. And she gave it to him. And I can imagine your childhood love story, like whatever it is. For Lena, it was The Princess Bride. Mm. Um, 
imagine giving that book to someone that you love and it's your teacher and he wrote all these like post-it notes like a teacher and he put them like in the book and there's just, like little leaves of them and I like, have I have them I mean it's insane and it's like little things like you know basically comparing himself to the vampire lover and her to the mortal young girl and how like isn't this like us every time I see you please wear sweatpants because sweatpants were like easy access I mean it was just it was crazy no. Did you have to get in touch with him before writing the book? Uh, yeah. I mean, I called him and wrote to him several times, and I also got in touch with his lawyer uh, several times, and I did not and get a response. There was nothing? No. The one I was surprised about who spoke to you was Sloan, because mm-hmm. I could understand Lena reaching out to you because of her loneliness, and Maggie, because she needed to be heard. Why do you think Sloan talked to you? And for those who haven't read the book, so Sloan is a very sort of elegant, privileged, married woman who has an open relationship with her husband um, and lives in this small little town. And people gossip about her already, which is how you heard about her. And I wondered what it was that made her open up. Well, I mean, first of all, the first thing that I heard about, I heard two rumors from a young woman who is going to introduce us. And the first one was that her husband liked to watch her have sex with other men in front of him. And the second was that he wanted to have sex with her every day. And not only did she allow it, but she enjoyed it. And I was like, that doesn't seem awful. Um, But, you know, so that was, so that kind of, that told me a little bit about the judgment that she was facing. So for Sloane, I mean, she's very, and I think a lot of people have seen the book, um, her story in the book as being, as like her being, first of all, she wanted to be a sexual submissive, but in life, I, you know, in their relationship out in, outside the bedroom, she's not submissive. And I think she was, I mean, I know she's really proud of who she is and of her lifestyle. And I think she wanted to talk because she just, it was exciting to talk about herself in a non-judgmental space. Mm-hmm. And she has a really happy marriage. And, you know, I think that other people can't grasp that just because it's not their scene. And how has she felt about the book's success? She's doing well. I mean, I think it's, it's a little bit, I think it's frightening just because, yeah. um, I mean, I know it's frightening because, I, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I would have talked to them mm. as much as I did if the book had been, if I knew the book was going to be widely read. Yeah. I yeah. think I would have just like squirreled into a little hole. And I mean, honestly, I don't. So I think that for, you know, I don't know, it's, it's difficult. We mm. didn't know. Yeah, when I read the book over the summer, I uh, took a photo of it and put it on my Instagram. Like Abby, exactly like Abby Wambach, that's me. Um, <laughs> well, you're my hero. <laughs> you're mine. And then I wrote underneath, oh my God, that, this book is incredible. I love this book so much. And about 75% of the responses underneath from my female friends were like, oh my God, it's incredible. Oh, I just read this in my book group. Oh, it's amazing. And then there were 25% going, oh my God, how could you? I couldn't even read it. Oh my God, I had to stop. Like, you know, after two stories, what are you talking about? And the responses were so visceral. And like, I don't post that many photos of books, but normally it's either, oh, I got to read that. Oh yeah, that's nice. It's, it, this was like either, I love it or oh, I can't even look at it. And I wondered if that's the response you've been re- getting too. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, somebody said it gave them nightmares, which right. I was like, I didn't mean to do right. that. Um, I think that, you know, I think that, I think that it's, it's I mean, I don't know. I didn't think that was going to happen because I don't see any of these. I mean, Maggie's, Maggie was a victim. I don't see Lena and Sloan as victims. Mm. Lena in particular what I find so interesting is that people always call her a victim and pathetic and that this man was, you know, just, he was in charge of her and he wasn't. Like, he was not 
getting back to her. Mm. He was not leaving his wife for her, but she was obsessed with him, and she had never, she had been group raped as a young woman, and then bodily abandoned by her husband for a decade, and she was finally having this amazing sex, yeah. and finding herself like in these spiritual moments of, and there's a scene, a part, I mean like a scene, um, there's a moment where she tells me that she, he says like, can you come to the river, which was their meeting spot, and she didn't have a babysitter for the kids. She didn't have a lot of money. So she was basically like, found a babysitter, drove one car to the next car because she couldn't put too many miles on one of the leases. Just went, I mean, just went insanely out of her way, just like crazy, like putting makeup on in the car. And I was like, I don't think that's pathetic or victimized. I think that she wants this. And so judging her for wanting it I don't think that's right. One. Two, I think she's incredibly in charge of what she wants. And even though, you know, she might fall on the sword of her own passion doesn't mean that it's not the sword that she chooses to fall on. She's pursuing it. She's like, I mean, to me, she's taking control of her life. I mean, how many of the rest of us just kind of drift in a situation? And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what's amazing about her. And same with Sloane. I I was surprised, too, when I read the reviews and they were talking about these three victims. And I I really thought, I, I don't see how... I mean, two of them definitely are not. Like, yeah. they're kind of having this amazing sex with men they love. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't seem very victim-y. I mean, I think that the sort of the, the outside view of it is that, you know, we're, Me Too is wonderful, obviously, and we're talking so much about what we don't want. We're not talking so much about what we do want, and I think one of the main reasons for that is that we don't really want to hear what women want. Mm-hmm. Specifically, other women sometimes don't. And I think that that's, you know, these women wanted. I don't think there's a wrong man, you know? I mean, like I always, I literally put everything, I spin everything as sex in the city. Because, I mean, I don't know. I don't, yeah, you guys right. watched it, right? Yes. Every, <laughs> see, everything to the prism of sex in the okay. city. <laughs> but, like, there's that scene, and I talked about it so much, where Miranda and Carrie are in this, like, vintage clothing store and Carrie has started seeing Big again oh, yeah. who is her Aiden mm-hmm. and uh, oh that's oh my gosh I love this not- <laughs> I'm going to quote it with you so carry on <laughs> no but I'm talking about you know Aiden is who I called you asked oh, yeah. me that yeah yeah no no connection clearly <laughs> things aren't in the back of my head um, but so Carrie is talking about how she's gotten back together with Big and how she's, you know, f- kind of freaking out. And Miranda's like, you're so pathetic when you're with him. And she's like, I don't want to hear it anymore. And I think that's, it's just a shocking reaction to I mean, you can be bored, you know, by listening to your friend. But I think that being angry is such yeah. an interesting and, and odd response. Were you expecting that kind of response when you went into it? Were you expecting to feel these kind of responses from women? No. I mean, not as much as I did. And Mm -hmm. I thought that, you know, the other thing that I thought was interesting is people wanting a sort of, like, conclusion. Like, what I thought. And I think that, I know, I'm I'm not an expert, and I don't think any of us are. I think that making a conclusion about these three women or any women or any female desire is crazy. Mm. Who can know? We're all each our own. We all want to be seen. We all want to be loved for who we are, but we all also want different things. Mm. 
And there's this moment in the introduction. I read the introduction about, I think I picked up a book about a month after my baby was born. So I was super hormonal. So I'll just preface that from the start. And I basically just sobbed my way through this, through reading the whole introduction. It's like most amazingly written and like every sentence just like kind of hits you right in the chest. And there's this one sentence. I'm going to really embarrass you by reading your words out in front of you now. It's better than me doing. (laughs) The men can frighten us. Other women can frighten us. And sometimes we worry so much about what frightens us that we wait to have an orgasm until we are alone. We pretend to want things we don't want so nobody can see us not getting what we need. And I just wondered how much of this you knew before you went in and how much of the stuff that you found that you talked about in the introduction you learned through the three women. Yeah, I think I I knew, I felt that way in a sense. I mean, I also grew up with a very Italian mother who, you know, used to, like, freeze the hairs of her enemies so that they couldn't harm her. I mean, I was clearly coming from a very logical place. (laughs) Um, So, no, I mean, I, you know, I tried to wash, slough that off, but, um, but... I I, you know, I saw so much of that in the women that I I spoke to across and and men too. I, mean, I think that more so with women though. I think that when as a woman you if you sort of men when they are out in the field with other men, it's like you know it's 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 cool to be competitive for the same woman or the same job. Where they're like you know lions out in the savanna or whatever lions are the tundra. I'm just kidding. I know it's not the tundra. Um, but when women compete, it's like catty. It's seen as catty and like you know, and that's that's what I saw. And I I mean I did kind of feel that way already, but um, I definitely saw that like a, almost across the board. Um, I think it's really interesting as well what a success has been after Me Too. I mean you mentioned that about how we just been focusing on men's desires but I think like you say there was so much focus during that on male sexuality that there was a huge appetite among women that people didn't really realize for knowledge about female sexuality and it's sort of interesting how little that's talked about the whole Me Too movement is obviously terrific but it kind of then becomes styled as women batting off Mm -hmm. these men with their needs um, which is not really (laughs) how human relations work and did you have any worries about how your book would be seen through the prism of Me Too or if you should work Me Too into it? Yeah, I mean, I was going to and I went back and I talked to each of the women about it. Uh, You know, Maggie and Sloan had been, there had been some, you know, developments in their lives because of Me Too. But Lena, for example, had not heard of it. And she's in rural Indiana. And, you know, people have said, you know, like, oh my gosh, how could, you know, she's not, they treated her like a sort of ghost from which they had to run from in order to ascend as a gender. And what I think is so horrific about that is that she's this woman, like we want to leave her in the dust, we don't want to talk about her because she likes a guy that doesn't like her back. And I thought that that was, so anyway, in terms of Me Too, because Lena, for example, wasn't wasn't a big deal. Uh, so I think tacking it on to my book after it had been mostly written and reported after the movement began felt like I was just tacking it on for the sake of being in the conversation. And I also just think that the book is about what women do want. And I don't think that what they, I don't think that anything you want can be bad unless it's, you know, going to hurt someone else. But if it's, if it's just like, you know, having sex with other people in front of your spouse or a guy who doesn't text you back for two weeks and then writes you up, you know, at like an, an inopportune time, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
Um, and this is, this is a sort of spoiler, it's not massive spoiler, but the book ends with Lisa's mother passing away, very sadly. And I wondered if you would have felt as free to write this book if your mother had been alive. What's funny, and I said this the other day, and people didn't laugh. And it's okay if you don't laugh, but I swear, it's, a very, it's, it's levity for me. Um, my editor said to me very you know, placidly, you know, one of the reasons I think that you're going to be great with this book is because both your parents are dead. <laughs> See, there's like the same, it's like, oh God, it's touchy. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, so no, I don't know, because I was, I was also saying to someone the other day that um, when my parents and I watched movies that had sex scenes in them, one of us was like, oh, do you want hot chocolate? Yeah. <laughs> um, even if we'd never had hot chocolate. Right. So, yes, I don't know. I mean, I probably, I probably, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Now, you know, obviously I'm thrilled that the book is such a success because the book is wonderful and I'm thrilled for you after all this work, but it also says something sad in a way that so many women are recognizing themselves in these stories. One of the things my friends who sort of had a visceral reaction against the book all say is the stories are so extreme and they are extreme, but the emotions are so relatable within them. Um, and that's amazing and also kind of tragic that there's so many women who feel divorced from their desire. Is that one of the things that surprised you about the book's success? I was surprised by people being sort of like, oh, because, I mean, not like I could have, like, you know, it would have been fine if it was like, it's boring, it's whatever, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's fine. I was just surprised by the, the sort of like, I guess the, the thinking that it was so extreme, like you say, because I think that, well, one, for one, I think that, you know, if you're just kind of coasting about in your life, like choosing paint colors for a home and everything's totally cool, you're probably not going to want to talk to a writer mm. about your sex life. You probably are like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'm like doing this. And so for <laughs> Lena, she needed to. It was huge. It was yeah. high and low. And for Maggie, she needed to. And for Sloan, it was, you know, it was, it was fun. Mm. I think there's nothing better than people asking you questions and you know, you get really excited to, like, have somebody that's, like, just kind of like a ghost sitting there listening to you. It's like like a verbal diary. Mm. And also, I, I mean, I personally feel the stories aren't really that extreme. I mean, Lena's experience in high school being yeah. raped, I mean, that is terrible. It's also not necessarily that uncommon. Yeah. And certainly the situation she finds herself in as an adult is, I think, a lot more common yeah. than a lot of women admit to each other. Totally. Um, so, I, I mean, that also sort of surprised... It was, like, up there with describing them as victims. Like, I didn't see them as victims. I also didn't read it thinking, these are stories of freaks. It's sort yeah. of like, these yeah. are stories <laughs> that you hear about quite a lot, really. Yeah. Um, 
but was there any feeling on your part that you needed to find certain types of women, women in certain types of situations, or was that almost impossible to ask for? No, I mean, I wanted, I wanted the, I mean, the first draft of the book was 15 people. All right. So, you know, and the draft before that was like 30 people. So it was always lots, and it wasn't, it wasn't just women, it was men, it was all kinds of, you know, sexual predilections and races. And what I, I ended up with these three, because when you, first of all, I had like 20,000 words more mm-hmm. than the, like the next person on each of those women. And um, I, beyond the word count, it was these like 13 other people at the end, 12, mm-hmm. I'm terrible at these 12 other people at the end, you would sort of just, we would read, like my editor and I and other people I gave the book to would read through it and you would just be reading to get to one of those three. And so the rest of them started to feel like filler. At one point, I thought it was, I have to cut, I had to cut people down. So I made the men like end notes. Mm-hmm. Like you would, they would be like in like, so Lena's husband would be there and then like you'd have to like flip to the back page. Oh, right. Yeah, no, my editor was like this, out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was clever. <laughs> How did the people who got cut feel? Because you obviously spent a lot of time with oh, them. Gosh, this is the most amazing thing. Well, my brother was one of them. Oh, um, right. <laughs> he's not the most amazing thing, but um, no. But like, what's funny is my brother still uh, communicates with me mm-hmm. as though uh, as though I'm still wow. writing about him. <laughs> So all his text messages are like, whoa, wait, hold on, let me tell you this. And I'm like, all right, I'm going somewhere else for Christmas because I can't do this. But um, but this woman, this was amazing. I was writing about this older woman. She was a widow, and she was on Our Time, which is like Match.com for older people. She was lovely, but she kind of wasn't, there was a sort of, um, there was a sort of, there's a, not a lack of emotional depth, but there's a kind of place that people won't go beneath. And that's totally normal. Um, but this woman had that. So there was kind of like, and I just wasn't getting down there, but she thought that we were. And it was just kind of like on the surface. Anyway, she got cut. Um, I had told her that I was writing a, a book about desire. And she was like, is it about older women? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you're the, you know, you're an older woman. And anyway, I went to this book festival where she lived and she came up and she was like I haven't read your book but I'm gonna can I get a post-it signed and I was like sure and then she said when is your book about older women having sex coming out and I was like next year (laughs) (laughs) so So that's what are the things you hear from women and, and from men who've read your book well, of the seven men who have read it. <laughs> one here tonight, I see about three There's of them. There's like probably seven, right? The lights are in my eyes, but I feel like I can feel male energy in the room. Um, <laughs> uh, I, um, I, one of them, one of the first male readers of the book said that until he had read the book, he did not realize how indifference could be so wounding. And that was really amazing because I think that's the main thing Lena would have wanted because Aiden, the man that she was in love with, wouldn't write back to her for like mm-hmm. two weeks. And mm-hmm. she was like, you couldn't even like write one single word back. Mm-hmm. Like even if you just said no, yeah. she would have been like fine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was a great reaction. Mm-mm-mm. And how about women? What did they come up and talk to you about? Everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny. It's like women are like, I have, and I'm like, well, you know, like they want to tell me stories. And I'm like, you were not... I did not find you on the road. Where were you? Um, No, it's been, women have been great. I mean, everyone's been great. I think that 
Yeah, everyone's been great, except for the people who haven't been great. (laughs) (laughs) What do they say? You know, I I think it's it's two things. It's one, the women are victims, Mm -hmm. which I also think is more victimizing of victims. I think it's insane. And the second thing is wanting a conclusion or this is not female desire. And like it never pretended to be, you know, it was like, this is a book about three women, that's what I meant. And it could have been six men, it could have been 17, you know, dogs. It was just meant to be a sort of, like, specific telling of, of ordinary people's lives the way that we would write about celebrities. Mm. Just making, because we're just, as, everyone's as important as anyone else. And so that was what I wanted to do. So and I wanted it to be desire, because that's you know, what the book proposal was. So even though dog sledding still came up, I was like... <laughs> <laughs> so is that what you're working on next? No. <laughs> I mean, I want to. I just <laughs> so are you going to do a follow-up with the women, or is this it? Um, I think this is... Mm-hmm. I mean, I still talk to them. I talk to Maggie every day. Mm-hmm. So in terms of following up with their lives, and I still want to know about Lena. Like, I could have gone on reporting and writing about Lena honestly forever. At one point I said, when I couldn't find anybody else, I said to my editor, um, I think it should just be like one woman. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was like four years in and I had one woman and I was tired. So no, I mean, no, I mean, I'll follow up with them in, you know, personally, but I don't, not like in a, in a book way. And you've got another book coming out. Is that right? Yes. Well, a novel mm-hmm. next here mm-hmm. and um, which I've said Lisa just casually knocked out while doing the research for this so when she handed in her when she handed in the manuscript for this after eight years it came with some bonus stuff it came with a novel and, and a collection of stories yeah. which every editor loves <laughs> in case you guys don't know nobody likes to buy short story collections either like the editor or the person out in the world but, but it that, sucks for but me that's coming really out, like but that's coming out too though right the short stories yes yes yeah. much to my editor's chagrin so after you, <laughs> so you handed in three books in one go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> did you not think I just want to have a? I just want to relax when I'm not doing all this reporting. I did, but I didn't think anything was going to happen. So I just wanted to sort of like you know throw a bunch of whatever the metaphor is, like spaghetti at the wall. Yeah, sure. What is it? Um, Feathers could, in the wind. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. See, that's great. I don't know that one. So yeah. I could have just said anything and you guys would have thought it was like an American. Yeah. <laughs> Feathers in the wind. Awesome. I'm going to use that. Um, yeah, so I didn't know. Mm. So I, I mean, if I had known, I, I was just like literally just, and this, and then I have this, and you know, just trying to get, just trying to pay back some debt. And the other thing is you are also adapting the book. For TV? Yes. So how is that going to work? How is it? I mean, it's going well. I don't know. Is it a mini series, though? It's not like one it's thing. A, it's a limited series for Showtime. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we've got, yeah, we've got 20 minutes for questions. Who wants, who wants to start? As you can see, we're very scary, so you should definitely <laughs> not ask questions. We have one down here. Hi, I'm Nicola. Oh, God, sorry. Um, I'm a journalist and hardly asked the one question I had but then I thought of another one Um, how did you afford to do this for eight years oh afford well that's why I'm that's why I gave my editor three books Um, I was you know a lot of debt my long-suffering husband who may or may not be in the audience because he's tired of hearing me speak um, worked at a Kmart as a photographer for like the Christmas photos even though he was like a very talented photographer. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of like side jobs. I wrote some articles 
for magazines, but it was mostly just kind of hoping that something would happen. Not like, you know, not a lot, but just enough to, to pay back some things. Hi, I was just wondering, with a project of this size that took so much time and so much connection and focus, how do you not lose yourself in the book? Is, it, is there a way of keeping your life separate from what you're researching? I would say not really. Um, only because there was not a day that went by that I wasn't thinking about it, mainly because it was a two-year book contract. So, you know, year four. I, like, I didn't talk to my editor for like a year at one point because I was like, they've forgotten about it. This is awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it was hard. Every day I was like, I should be right. I should be doing something. So I did. I mean, I either posted a sign or I, you know, I just, I had to do something even if it was like minuscule and silly. So, I mean, I, I guess I did lose myself. I'm still lost, but that's not because of the book. <laughs> Writing this book, did it change you as a woman? Did it change your relationship with women? How you view women? How do you relate to women? Um, Thank you. It didn't... I mean, I guess I've always been rather non-judgmental of everyone but the people in my household. <laughs> so it didn't change the way I viewed other women. I rem if anything, it made me feel even more like, oh, you know, we're all... Like whenever someone says, oh, that person that passed you on the street, on like the highway on the right-hand side, oh, the left-hand side. Um, uh, you know, maybe he just had a really terrible morning where someone he loved was sick. So, you know, and I think this, I got more of that from this book and that's what, um, I think that's the biggest thing it did. I really, really love the book. And I think for me and for many people, hello, should I stand up? Um, <laughs> um, the most heartbreaking story was Maggie's um, because she really was like the one that didn't have the proper agency going into it and I just wondered what do you think it is about the community and the school like her fellow students that made them not want to believe her or genuinely not believe her when she came forward yeah I mean I think that I mean one I think it's a, it's a small town which is Kind of, it's not, I mean, we, you know, in large cities, we kind of have different views of um, the way people should, should be treated and the way that people should be believed. But ultimately, I kind of think that it's a lot easier to believe that someone is a good person and the other person is just kind of, you know, insane than it is to believe that there's a, a, a bad person in the ether. And like Maggie's mom said, like nobody wanted to believe that this nice-looking man was not a good person and I think that's I think that's what it is hi I'm Josel I'm a writer um and I write quite frankly about things I'm wondering whether you would write as frankly about your own sexual experiences and your own sexuality and whether you would find that too exposing I mean, I have a little bit, and I'm going to do more. I, um, I've found, and somebody asked me this yesterday, I just, you know, I always think about, like, people who are older, like, in their 80s and 90s, who just say everything, and, like, they don't care, and it's fine. And I'm like, you know what? Why not just do that now? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yes. Hi. Um, Hi. Loud. Um, I like. I'm sure everyone else here massively enjoyed the book. It was deeply moving for me, and I have a lot of male friends that I wanted to, you know to talk to about it. 
and I am having a lot of trouble getting men to read this book. <laughs> and I think it's so necessary for them to read. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you've seen that with you know other women that you've talked with, and if you have any ideas on how to get it to the male you know community. I don't, you know, I don't know why not. There was a man in the airport the other day, actually, and I was signing the books at the airport, and this man was like, "Oh, what's going on here?" And I'm like, "Oh, it's it's a book um, that I wrote." And he goes, "Oh, it's so cool!" And I'm like, "Buy it." And <laughs> and he said, oh, "What's it about?" And I'm like, "Oh God, it's like this really seedy story of like hot sex and like." And he was like, "Oh," and he was kind of appalled. And I was like, "No, no, it's like it's about women's desire, and it's like you know, if you have a daughter or a wife, you should." And he was like, "Oh," and he bought it, and it was really quite lovely. I don't know, you know, I think that men don't know what it is and what to make of it. Um, which is why I wanted to go on Howard Stern really badly. I thought that he would like really be able to tell people what it was. Um, but no, I don't. You know, I don't know. I wish. I wish there were more. I think it would be cool. Let them pick. Sorry, <laughs> I'm interfering. <laughs> Hi. Um, this slightly overlaps with the question over there, but I, I'm just completely intrigued why the abusive teacher was acquitted. You said you'd spoken to some of the jurors. Did they not believe he'd done it, or was there some sort of rationalization of what he had done? Some of them didn't believe that he'd done it, but more so, it was that even... It wasn't so much the doing it or not doing it, but if you take the notes, all these little notes in her book, like, I can't wait till you're 18, um, etc., they thought that even if he had written those, that it would be fine. And it wouldn't necessarily mean that anything physical had happened. And also, like, you know, it was consensual. And so, um, he you know. He hadn't raped her. He hadn't raped her. And so that for them was, you know, and on the, I, you know, I think I, I did. I wrote it in the book. Uh, on the way out of the trial, uh, somebody said, I hope that, you know, can you believe that young woman tried to ruin that man's life? I hope that you know, that never happens again to him. And... You know, I just, what's shocking is that so many things happened to Maggie in the wake of, of this, this situation. And her, you know, a lot of her life, well, most of her life was completely affected. And his, I mean, of course, I'm sure it was affected, but not, not the way that it was for her. I mean, not the way that I know it was for hers. And it's just people didn't, in North Dakota at that time, pre-Me Too, though I don't know if post-Me Too would have made much of a difference, they just... It was a matter of not, it not being a big deal. And also, it's the classic story of she wasn't a perfect victim. Right. She was you know, a child yes. of alcoholic. Yes. She was, quote, unquote, troubled. And yes. he is this totally. handsome family man. Yes, completely. And therefore, it's, yeah. oh, well, she wanted it. She yeah. led him on. Yeah. And we need to protect him, yes. basically. Completely. And what was so interesting was that Maggie, her family life was quite good. Yeah, yeah. Like she had, yes, her parents had problems with alcohol, but it wasn't, I mean, there's bigger problems in families that don't have alcoholism. Mm. And the other thing is that, so they just like spun it that way terribly and it was cruel and misguided and the media did it too. And it was just really awful. So I think it's just, it was just so, um, she's just such a lovely, smart, young woman that to have spun her that way to see that like from my perspective to meet her and have seen what they did in the paper was just shocking I think also what's really interesting about the Maggie story in the book is that 
in many, many ways, it's very typical mm-hmm. of sex abuse cases uh, that come to courts. I mean, so few rape cases end in conviction, like mm-hmm. minuscule end in conviction. And the coverage around it, you know, speaking as a journalist, it is very, the, the coverage in this story is very representative of the coverage of these stories. You know, the, did she lead him on? What did she do? What was her culpability in this? Um, this poor guy, why, why is this happening to him? And what's important about the Maggie section in the book, I mean, among the many things, is how Lisa really drills down underneath those cliches that we've all become so inured to, really, in coverage of these kinds of cases, um, about what does it really mean when someone is troubled, in, you yeah. know, and wh- what does this mean that he's married? Like, it, what, you know, does that mean that he's more stable? Um, mm-hmm. And you see behind that curtain of, of how that dichotomy is set up, really. Yeah, and, and the other thing I'll say about that aspect, which is, to, is that what I said to Maggie when I started writing about her was that I, you know, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do this. We can't just like be like, you're the victim and he's the perpetrator. Like I need to get at all your sort of negative bits because if we don't do that, one, it's not accurate. Mm -hmm. And two, people are going to believe you even less than they did. Like you're a real human being and you had these issues, but you also didn't have those issues. So let's just tell the truth. And also, she did have desire. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that doesn't mean that she then led him on, wanted it, da-da-da-da-da. I mean, I'm sure all of you followed the case in the news, and you might have seen it here, too, because it's been going on while you're here, the Grace Mullane case of the girl in New Zealand. And during that trial, I mean, she is dead, but she was on trial. You know, the fact that she had used um, BDSM websites, the fact that Mm -hmm. she'd had consensual uh, choking during sex with a previous boyfriend. So therefore, it's her culpability rather than his. And I mean, that is how these cases work is, you know, it's easier to, you know, prove her guilt, you know, she's done this, than his. Mm -hmm. He must be protected. That is kind of how the courts still work in a Mm -hmm. weird sort of way. And that's why I think more men, I wish, would read this book because I think it's only when they read the Maggie chapter, as you found, sir, that it's so shocking, you think, but it's so obvious. How is this? And you think, but yes, welcome to sex abuse cases. This Mm -hmm. is how it always is. Thank you. Uh, Lisa, I really loved the book and I thought it was written incredibly poetically for something that was quite biographical. Um, The thing that I wanted to ask you to unpick a bit for me was the the tension that I had throughout the whole thing was about self-esteem of all of the women who were involved in it and on the one hand feeling like they were really empowered and kind of going with their desire and on the other hugely trapped by the expectation of society that they would follow this particular route of love and marriage and children Um, and the things that sometimes they did were quite reactive based on feeling bad about themselves and body image and all of those kinds of things so I just wanted to to know your views on that. And the second question I have was, do you guys really have Cadbury's cream eggs in America? Because I didn't know that that How was what? I'm sorry. <laughs> it sounds good. Cre- oh, Cadbury oh, cream Cadbury eggs. Oh, Cadbury cream eggs. <laughs> I just saw one um, yesterday in like a Tesco and I was like, oh, because someone said to me, one of the fact, the fact checker was like, they don't make them outside of April. And I'm like, they're expired, but they're out there. Um, but... What, I'm sorry, what was your question about Cadbury cream? I'm sorry, you just said it. and I. My, my main question was about the tension between the self-esteem of the women and their desire, um, okay. really, and, and how, you, how you sort of explored that with them. How, in, how empowered are they and how much are they just like reacting against their own body image and all the other challenges they have about kind of following a traditional path of marriage and children? I think for Lena, it was incredibly traditional. She came from a really traditional Catholic background. You had to have 
ex, you know, two kids, you had to have this house, like a nice house that was clean, you had to clean it yourself. Um, she had this sort of, you know, rubric. And what, what happened, though, is that she did, she followed that life for 10 years. And then it got to a point where she felt like she wasn't loved and desired. And one of the things I always think is so interesting is, and she said she got it from her mom, is that whenever Ed, her husband, didn't make her feel loved, she would force these other compensations. Like, mm. if he didn't touch her that morning, she would say, can you clean the garage? Because that was like an actionable thing to get. And it wasn't re- getting rejected emotionally. It was getting rejected on this sort of tangible mm. um, level. So, but I'm sorry, to go back to your question, I think that Lena finally getting into this, finally like going into her body. Like she had endometriosis, she had fibromyalgia that nobody believed uh, until one doctor did believe her. And he said something to the effect of, you know, a good orgasm will cure you. And that, that sounds trite, but what he meant was right. And he meant that when if you find someone who likes you and likes your body and makes you feel like a human being in the world, then you probably won't feel as bad or you won't notice the pain as much. And that was true. And so she, she lost a lot of weight. Not that one has to lose weight to feel good, but for Lena, that's what she wanted. And she wanted to fit into her old clothes. And then she did. And then she was having this sex with this man and this, like, giant like Tahoe and um and it was amazing and I Lena's part is the most sexually explicit because she was genuinely finding herself in those moments and I don't think it was I mean did she have a lack of self-esteem I mean to what point do we not all have a lack of self-esteem you know I mean right I don't know. Unless you guys are all like very esteemed, I <laughs> am not. So, anyway. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Um, loved your book. It was almost like the feminist book that I've been waiting for. It really, really resonated. Um, and you talk in your interviews about kind of mummy issues and instead of daddy issues. And I thought that was um, very interesting. I've heard that in your interviews. How do you overcome those as a woman? I mean, I'm, I'm shamed all the time by my mum, by what she sees on Instagram, you know, all that kind of stuff. How do you, how, how would you, what advice would you give to people, to women, to kind of overcome that? Can you block her? Um, <laughs> I have blocked her. <laughs> I, um, I think she's learning that, you know, <laughs> I can do what I want now, but yeah. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, the shame from one's mom, I don't, I mean, I was shamed, but I think we've all been shamed by our moms to some extent. I think that we often do it, we, I'm not doing it to my four-year-old daughter yet. I mean, I am, but I think that, I think that the reason that we do it or it's done to us is because it was done to us and then it was done to us. And so we just keep passing the baton of shame. And I think we do it because, I think our moms did it because it's, it makes them feel sort of um, safe to make sure that you're kind of, that maybe you don't do the same things that made them feel shame. So if they kind of halt you by making you feel bad about yourself, I don't know, I think that's a positive spin on it that I like to think about. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, I think that just kind of by, I mean, I was never able to be honest with my mom. 
and she passed away before I could be, but I don't know that we would have been if she had, you know, who knows? So, um, yeah, I don't know. I would just block her on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think the last question now. Oh, dear. <laughs> it's not that bad. Um, I'm really interested in the adaptation process you're going through with this because this is such a deep dive into the internal sexual lives of women. How are you going to adapt that for the screen and show it in a way that kind of has the revelations that it has for the rest of the audience here? I'm going to call you. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I've, I've actually... I spoke to someone the other day who will probably be working on it who had some really brilliant ideas. And I think it's about, like, um, I, I just, I think visually it needs to be shown as, um, as sort of, uh, this, like, kind of seeing it through a filter so you see it through the eyes that everyone else sees it and then you see it through their eyes. And I think that's kind of the direction to lean on, though, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think that's all we have time for tonight. So thank you all of you for coming and thank you so much to Lisa. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Lisa Tadeo and Hadley Freeman. It was edited by John Doughty. From Elizabeth Gilbert to Marie Forleo, you can find more in-depth interviews with the most exciting people in global culture at howtoacademy.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you live in or near London, you can visit us live almost every night of the week for talks, debates, conferences and festivals about the biggest questions facing the world today. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>